Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... It's just a non-starter to say, well, we'll just have to give up on unproductive parts of the country. You know, if people want a job, they'll have to move to New York or to San Francisco or whatever. Not only will it not work, but it's also callous. Martin Sambu on the economics of belonging and a plan for widespread prosperity. Hey, everybody. One final reminder that executive producer Amy Keene and I are going to be doing a listener Q&A episode soon. So if you have a question about the economy or about us or about really anything that you want answered on the show, please email it to us at hello at bazaaraudio.com. That's hello at B-A-Z-A-A-R-A-U-D-I-O dot com. And now on with the show. Today's guest is Martin Sambu, and you know what? He's here with me now, so we're just going to jump right into it. Martin, hi. Welcome to the New Bazaar. Hi, Cardiff. Great to talk to you again. Yes, indeed. We should introduce you to our listeners. Uh, You are a former colleague of mine, and you're also Amy's former colleague at the Financial Times, where, as I understand it, you write columns, you write newsletters, you write books, I think... In your free time, you scale buildings and fight crime and do other things as well. So tell everybody what it is that you do at the FT, please. Yeah, the, the crime fighting bit is a secret bit, so don't tell anyone about that. <laughs> Sorry about uh, that. I'm the, my, my title now is the European economics commentator, which is because these days I write mostly about the European economy. But I also have a weekly newsletter called Free Lunch. It's free for anyone who pays the premium subscription. And uh, <laughs> and that that's where I cover pretty much anything that I find interesting in the global economic policy debate, including the US debate. And the last book is called The Economics of Belonging. That's really about what's gone wrong and what we can do about it in all the Western economies, because as we'll talk about, there are some very common patterns. The full title of the book, by the way, is The Economics of Belonging, A Radical Plan to Win Back the Left Behind, and achieve prosperity for all. So let's start with a simple definition here. When you refer to the economics of belonging, what does the belonging mean? Who has not belonged and who should belong? And what does it mean to belong? I hit upon this word belonging because I thought it captured both aspects of the big economic problem we've been grappling with for some time in Western societies. And it's one that has an economic and a political side. It's polarization, if you like. It's both that economically, our populations have been growing apart. People have very different and ever more unequal prospects. And politically, I hardly need to say it, especially for a US audience, we have been growing apart. We're becoming much more polarized. I think both of those phenomena can be captured in this idea of of belonging. We no longer live in an economy where almost everyone, pretty much everyone, feel that they belong, that it it is their economy, their society. Now, I'm talking about the economics of belonging because the main thesis of the book is that economics is really at the root of the problems we face, including the political problems. So who belonged? There's never been a time where everyone belonged. But the kind of era that in politics you have some of the, especially people on the fringes that have been taking over our politics, the period that they kind of appeal back to those couple of decades after the Second World War, that was a time where almost everyone in Western societies felt that prosperity was spreading also their way. This economy was working for them. It was their economy. They all belonged. That ended several decades ago. And the book is really about what went wrong and what do we do about that? Yeah, let me let me ask uh, what I hope is a clarifying question here. When we refer to the economy that existed in those decades after the Second World War, and you refer to an economy where people increasingly belonged, there's a difference between saying that back then everyone belonged versus the pace of improvement as the economy increasingly was spreading its prosperity throughout groups that traditionally had been left behind or marginalized. So I think we would look back, certainly in the United States, and say, well, in those decades, those were still a time of tremendous disparities, certainly racial and ethnic inequalities. But the economy increasingly was starting to spread 
its prosperity, even to groups that before had been left behind. So it's not like everybody caught up in those decades, but it looked like the economy had some promise that more and more people would benefit from the prosperity that we were witnessing at the time. Is, is that about right? I think that's a very good way of putting it, Cardiff. And, and it's true that there were some groups who were probably still excluded even from that progress. The way people were catching up and growing more closely together was above all in class terms, economic class terms, poorer people having higher wage growth than richer people. That was true in most Western societies from just after the war until into the 70s. I want to ask you about a theory that you introduced quite early in the book. It's It's a theory that sort of melds economics and political stability. And you write that the post-war economic order was one that had three things. It had liberal democracy, it had a social market economy, and then it included openness to the rest of the world, or what I think we would just refer to now as globalization. And you write that it's the second thing, the idea that the market economy was not spreading its benefits widely that threatens the other two things, that threatens liberal democracy and that threatens economic openness. So take us through this idea, please. That's right. I I see what I think of as the successful Western model of the post-war decades as having those three pillars. There's an institutional democratic pillar, if you like, with all the things we understand by liberal democracy, obviously free elections, but you know, an independent judiciary, a free press, all of these things. This is the norms of liberal democracy. There was a domestic economic pillar, which was, as you said, the social market economy, an economy where everyone felt there's a place for me here. You know, I do my bit. In the US, you call it the American dream, but you, you can describe it in different ways in different countries. It's just the idea that you know, you, you do what's expected of you and, and you get economic rewards and things are getting better. And the third pillar was this international dimension. And this is very striking. From the very beginning after the Second World War, there was a determination not to keep up the barriers that had arisen in the 1930s. And the way to rebuild the world was to build those barriers down. And that was true in terms of international institutions. It was true in terms of trade. Trade was growing strongly at that time. It's not new. There was a new phase starting in the 80s that we'll talk about. But these three things, I think, fit together. And I think what happened politically was that for decades, that economic pillar had been crumbling. People were understandably deeply unhappy about that. And along came these right-wing populists and sometimes left-wing populists saying, look, this model isn't working for you. You've been betrayed. The promise has been broken. So come with me and let's throw the whole thing out. Throw out the liberal democratic bit and the international bit as well. You know, put up the wall, build borders, control our borders, our money and so on, as people said in the Brexit debate in the UK, the campaign to take the UK out of the European Union. So in the politics, in both the rhetoric and the arguments, these three things were also tied together. And the offer was basically the true statement that the economic pillar hasn't been kept up with the incorrect conclusion that therefore we should throw everything out and have a completely new social model, which involves a strong man at the top, be that Trump or Marine Le Pen in France or equivalent figures. Yeah, and let's... Go ahead now and try to arrive at a deep understanding of what has happened to the economy in the decades since the late 70s and early 80s. So you write that essentially three big things have happened. First, there's been rising income inequality all throughout the advanced economies of the world. Second, productivity growth has slowed. It doesn't mean that the economy has stopped becoming more and more efficient over time, but the pace of improvement has slowed dramatically from those decades after the Second World War. And this matters a lot because without fast productivity growth, you can't have quickly rising wages in the long term. In other words, living standards can't climb as quickly as they used to if productivity growth has slowed. But there's a third and also very deep problem which is that the salaries of the broad middle class have not kept up even with the weak productivity growth that we have seen in the last four or five decades. 
you attribute these trends, these profoundly disturbing trends, to a certain number of technological developments over time and the failures of government policy to deal with those technological developments and not to the thing that often gets blamed, which is globalization. So I wanted to take these in turn. What are the technological developments that you assign blame to for these trends that we've seen, these very disturbing trends that we've seen over the last four or five decades? Let me give you two kind of data points or, or, or facts to start with. I one love is, data points. <laughs> one, one is pretty well known. It is that in the US, uh, the number of factory workers peaked in around 1980. So it was as close to 20 million then, and then it, it started falling. The share of factory workers in the total labor force had been falling for a long time, but the absolute number had been rising up until about 1980, and then it started falling. Not just in the US, but pretty much every other advanced economy, that's when factory jobs peaked. The second fact or, or data point is that industrial production, manufacturing output, did not peak at that time. It really didn't peak at all in most countries. In the US, the US economy churns out as much physical stuff as it ever has. It kept increasing in the 80s, 90s, a bit flat in 2000, the 2000s when China entered the global economy, started growing again after the global financial crisis, you know, ups and downs with recessions. But on the whole, most advanced economies produce a lot of stuff. So you don't have the same pattern in output of factories as you had in employment of factories. So on the whole, you've had much more productivity in manufacturing. You produce much more stuff with fewer hands. And that is basically the, the main technological fact here, that we just don't need many hands in factories anymore. So in a sense, it's a good thing, right, that we can produce a lot of stuff with fewer inputs. In itself, it's a good thing. It's a source of wealth. But there are two things to say about this. Uh, one is about why did it happen? Well, it didn't really happen because of globalization, because it was already happening before, and it, it really took off before you know, the very intensive phase of globalization that started in the late 80s and through the 90s. Uh, the other thing is, well, how do you manage it? Because when those jobs no longer exist, what are the other jobs people can get to? And here we come to, to policies and differences between countries. Some countries have managed that transition much better than others. In some countries, like the US, the new jobs have very often been low-paid and low-productivity jobs, often in services. In other countries, the jobs haven't been so poor. Everyone has lost factory jobs. Germany has lost factory jobs. Norway has lost factory jobs. But depending on the country you look at, you've had different degrees of success in creating new and better jobs to replace those. Yeah, so when we talk about the economics of belonging, there are people who no longer belong to the part of the economy, you know, that is leading to rising living standards, greater wealth over time, children who do better than their parents. But it's not like it's hopeless is what you're saying, because there are some countries that have gotten this right. And so I just think it's important to highlight that disparity, that there are some places that have managed to pull it off and perhaps there are lessons that we can learn from them, yeah? I, I think the way to put it is that the challenges are the same everywhere because this has to do with factories becoming more productive. A lot of it has to do with automation and robots, but largely even without globalization, you would have seen the same thing, is what I contend in the book. But the outcome for the population, you know, what has happened to those people who would 40 years ago have easily gone into a factory job? That is quite different from one country to another. Martin, you describe four very big societal effects of these trends of rising inequality and these technological developments that policymakers have not quite caught up to. And I just want to sketch them out very quickly and then just ask you to kind of characterize the overall results. So first, you write that non-college workers have fallen behind workers who do have college degrees. Second, Towns, small and mid-sized towns, have fallen behind cities because cities, of course, are the places where a lot of the high-tech digital economy jobs have flocked to. And then third, the people who stay in those towns that themselves have fallen behind cities have also suffered disproportionately from these trends. 
And then finally, and this is an interesting, this is an interesting one. You write that a lot of men have been reluctant to switch from jobs that traditionally were stereotyped as very masculine jobs, you know, factory work, manual work. Uh, they've been reluctant to accept jobs that traditionally have been stereotyped as, and I'm doing air quotes here, feminine work. So, you know, care work, healthcare jobs, uh, teaching jobs, social services, and so on. And you write that this is a problem because the economy is deindustrializing. We are losing those traditional factory jobs. And in fact, a lot of the jobs that are expected to be created in the future are in these care work jobs like healthcare and education. And so I'd love to just hear how you would characterize the collective result of these four trends. I think we need to be very honest here, politically honest. Um, what you've described is, you know, we talked about what had declined, namely factory employment. We haven't talked so much about what's come in place, in its place, which is an economy led by high value services. That shift favors very clearly some types of people and disfavors others. And this is something that populists like Trump and others have been very good at kind of latching onto and articulating in their particular rather offensive way, but they're articulating it. And I'm going to paraphrase a bit what you've already said, but look, the sort of things that are now in demand in the current economy, uh, one that's led by high value skills is social skills, sort of being able to relate to others, the high value services create value in the interaction between people. Cognitive skills, you need basically more, you know, more bookish learning. That's, that's more expertise that needs to be learned to fulfill the, the jobs that are productive today. And less so stuff that relies basically on manual work and manual strength. But it also affects different personality types. Right? Those who are very comfortable with change, with discovery, with new things, with novelty, everything that happens in the big city, they are favored, right? They are more adaptable to these jobs, whereas people who are more stuck in their ways, and I want to say this in, in very non-judgmental ways, sort of people who, out of loyalty, want to stay behind in their small town, maybe because of family links, people who just are not comfortable with change, who prefer stability. So those people are they're drawing shorter straws in today's economy than they would have 40, 50 years ago. And it's entirely legitimate for them to feel that something's gone wrong from their perspective. And linked to this is the fourth one, which is between smaller places and rural places versus the big city. All of these things are aligned. And once you kind of line them up next to one another, you see that the group that's been suffering on each count is very much what we associate with the right-wing populist electorate. Yeah, this is... Such an intriguing point and one that's brutally difficult to figure out from a public policy standpoint, because when we think of a static versus a dynamic economy, in moral terms, it sounds like it's better to embrace a dynamic economy. But that actually presents problems for people who, for very human reasons, might be reluctant to embrace a dynamic economy. You mentioned loyalty. You mentioned family ties. Having roots in a place, we consider these to be important and very human qualities. And so it's not like, well, you know, I don't know, just get up and move and go to where the jobs are. Like that, that sounds like such callous advice. It can't be that simple. In some sense, I think public policy needs to work alongside human motivations, human psychology, and not against it. And so it doesn't make sense to me to say, well, you've got to embrace, everybody's got to embrace a dynamic economy. I think that the crucial thing to do is to make sure that a dynamic economy can be made to work for all kinds of people, right? Exactly. I think that the big, big policy and political challenge is to make change safe, as safe as possible for as many people as possible. And, and politically, it's just a non-starter to say, well, we'll just have to give up on unproductive parts of the country. You know, if people want a job, they'll have to move to New York or to San Francisco or whatever. Not only will it not work, but it's also callous, a word you use, and I, I completely agree. It's a political imperative. If you have a country, you have to try to make things work for the whole country. That is not to say that every old employer is going to be sustained, every factory needs to be saved and so on, not at all. But it needs to make, it means that we have to make dynamism work broadly. 
And the difficulty we've had over the last couple of decades is, is the kind of change that is now natural and technologically driven and that we won't be able to stop. It's one that it stacks the deck a bit against us. The factory economy was great in that the optimal size of a factory, uh, a local factory-based economy is, you know, is a middle-sized town. You can have a factory there. The optimal kind of unit size for the high-value-added service economy tends to be the metropolis, where you can have a big pool of educated, dynamic workers who are happy to exchange skills and knowledge and ideas between them. But, you know, that's not where most people live, after all, and we can't have everyone live like that. So this is why I'm saying that the deck is stacked against us. That's one answer to the question of why did we get it so wrong. It's really difficult. It's not, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's a really difficult problem. It really is because you can't embrace an approach to policy that either slows down dynamism, which is absolutely vital to rising living standards over time, to rising wages, to jobs being created. But you also can't take an approach that leaves people behind, that, you know, that makes it so that there are people who don't belong when you do pursue policies that increase dynamism. And so you have to kind of thread the needle in a way of having policies that both enhance dynamism and also bring everybody along to enjoy the benefits of that dynamism. And it's incredibly tricky. And your argument, by the way, is that politicians, policymakers, have largely screwed this up over the last four or five decades, that they have screwed up this shift towards a deindustrialized labor force, and that, in fact, they have actually shifted risk onto workers at exactly the time that these workers were under the most pressure, and that what we've seen is the rise of what you can call the precariat, the very precarious class of people. And here I'm just going to throw the mic right back to you, Martin. What does it mean to be a part of the precariat class, and why is it such a problem that policymakers have screwed this up so badly? Well, the, the precariat, I think, there's, there's no need to be too nice about it. It's the people who are forced to work in crap jobs, jobs without security, uh, jobs with very low wages, jobs with unpredictable work patterns, jobs that maybe don't add up, so you need two or three of them, and all the time wasted getting from one job to another, planning one shift, uh, planning how to deal with your family, your responsibilities to your children, all of that is at the cost of the worker, him or herself, and which in the end is extremely unproductive, right? These are jobs that themselves are unproductive. That's why they pay so little. And the whole situation, the fact of, of having a lot of people work in precarious jobs is also unproductive. It's a huge it's a huge waste of economic potential, as well as, of course, human potential. And politically, it's not sustainable. Yeah, and you add that policy has actually made this worse, in part because we have designed a safety net that's based on means testing, which simply means that you have to pass certain criteria in order to qualify for a government benefit. For example, if you make less than a certain amount of money, then you qualify for a benefit. But if you have a precarious job where you don't know how much money you're going to make, you don't know what your hours are going to be from week to week or from month to month, then it becomes very difficult to access these benefits, which leads to even more of a precarious situation. So can you connect those two things for us? The idea that the safety net, as it has been designed in the last few decades, has actually exacerbated the problem of precarity rather than alleviated it, which is what we would want. It's quite right. I, I mean, I would say that the, it's still designed in a way that was based on going further back when the norm was you have the man in the family having one full-time job for life in a factory, you know, stereotypically. That's when the welfare systems of Western countries, less so in the US, more so in Europe, were built after the war again. Uh, but of course, the labor market and the economy uh, have changed since then, and we need more flexibility, and the nature of work is more flexible, and so on. Things change faster. But just to give you one example, there was a, a study by the Resolution Foundation here in the UK, which showed that the benefit system of the UK very clearly amplifies the swings in earnings of people in precarious jobs, precisely because, you know, when you have a bit of earnings, you can enter the system in some way. 
when you lose it, you kind of go out of the system or you go into a different sort of benefit. There are time lags. And of course, there are frictions and hindrances and obstacles all along the way. These systems are not made to make it easy for people who are already under tremendous stress to get the benefits they even are, you know, with the best intentions are intended to get. Sometimes the intentions aren't even that good, the intentions of policymakers. Yeah. But even when they are, it's not designed to be smooth and help you move from worse jobs into better jobs. There is a section in your book that I really loved that involves the lessons of the Nordic model, and it involves a car wash and a concept known as wage compression. I'd love to hear yes. about this. This is a story, really. When I uh, lived in New York in the early 2000s, I once had uh, lunch with a Norwegian economist. I'm from Norway originally. I grew up there. I was living in New York in the early 2000s. This economist was visiting, we had lunch, and we started to think about the difference between the two economies. And the difference that kind of hit us was how cars are washed in the US and in Norway. So when I was growing up in Norway in the 80s, the way you would wash your car, unless you did it yourself, would be to go to a service station and put it in front of these big blue roller brushes. And if you were a kid, you would stay inside the car and be kind of exhilarated seeing those brushes go over you. Never quite, never quite sure that the water wouldn't come in and you would drown and so on. In the US, certainly in New York in the early 2000s, if you went to have your car washed, uh, you would go into a service station and three or four or five immigrant men with washcloths would descend on the car and do it all by hand. My interlocutor at this lunch was saying, look, that's a technology that uh, expired, that went out of use in Norway in the 1960s. Uh, and why was that? Well, it was because salaries were getting too high salaries for that kind of job, which is obviously at the low end of the wage scale. So this is a wage compression you referred to. In all of the Nordic economies, you've had close to a century now of a tradition of uh, wage bargaining, which compresses wages in that it lifts up wages at the bottom end from what they would otherwise be, probably pushes them down a bit at the top from what they would otherwise be. And what that does to go back to my example, is to just make it too expensive to hire people to manually wash your customers' cars. It's cheaper, more profitable for the service station owner to invest in those big blue roller brushes. Now, this is just a, a little story about an economic activity we undertake all the time. But of course, what it is, is an example of the choice between using low productivity but cheap labor or investing in capital. They're two different production technologies for doing the same thing. And we can write that example large by looking at different economies. Are the incentives set up to invest in capital or to hire cheap but unproductive labor? So countries like the US and the UK, I think the big mistake, one of the big mistakes over the last 40 years is to have allowed the growth of a sector, a segment of the economy that does rely on low productivity labor because it's cheap. Whereas you look at the Nordics and on the whole, the experience has been that pushing up those wages at the low end, it's not reduced employment. These are very high employment societies, but it's made that kind of job uneconomical. So you get more investment in capital and you've got higher productivity jobs replacing the lower productivity ones. So fewer people work in car washes, but people have other jobs in a place like Norway. There's a sort of coda to this story, or, or a beginning and an end, if you like, a prequel and a sequel. The prequel <laughs> is that the automatic car wash was invented in the US in the 1930s, 1940s. And many of your listeners will have experience with this, that they obviously still exist in the US, and they were spreading in the 40s and the 50s with the advent of the car society. Uh, and that was because that was a time where, as we said at the beginning, things were going in the right direction. Wages were growing fast. And businesses found that, well, there's demand for car washes because people are getting cars. Wages are going up. It's not worth hiring people to do this with washcloths. Let's invest in these car washing machines. The sequel is that when I go back to Norway today, I see more and more car washes that are manual and that are employing uh, a now larger number of uneducated immigrant workers with few other options and that are clearly being exploited and labor rules clearly being circumvented. So even though the rules on paper are strong, there's quite a few people kind of slipping off the edges of that. And so you see, again, not just between countries, but over time, 
what sort of incentives you set up for business obviously influences what sort of technological models they choose. The high capital, high wage, high productivity one, or the low capital, low productivity, low wage one. And it seems to me clear that one is preferable to the other. Yeah, and you mentioned that the way to compress wages in a place like Norway involves collective bargaining. The political system in Norway, I think, is is its own. It is distinct, as all political systems are. In the U.S., I don't know if that model is something that could be easily replicated, given that unionization rates in the U.S. have been falling for decades. Maybe there will be a reversal. There have been some high-profile examples recently with respect to Amazon and Starbucks, where there have been some unions that have been formed quite surprisingly recently. But so far, that kind of a reversal has not shown up in the aggregate data. Right now, the trend still looks like it's heading downward. But there might be other ways of replicating that kind of wage compression, for example, with higher minimum wages or by essentially stimulating an economy to the point where wages are going up even for low-income workers, which also incentivizes companies to then invest in more automation and to raise the productivity growth, even of jobs that traditionally have been very low productivity. So I'd love to just get your thoughts on you know, what the best approach is, or if there even has to be a best approach. Maybe there can be a kind of all-of-the-above approach to getting this kind of, I don't even want to necessarily call it wage compression because it's sort of dubious what exactly would happen at the top based on some of these uh, ideas, some of these policies, but certainly in elevating folks who have very low incomes and getting their wages to climb. I, I think you're putting exactly the right health warning on how do we draw lessons from the Nordic model. Just on unionization, it's a really good example of where you've had differences between countries over the last 40 years. Because as you point out, in the US, unionization rates have fallen quite dramatically. That's true in several other, several West European countries. It's not true in the Nordics. Unionization rates have stayed high there. So this is one example of what was allowed to happen in the US and may have had bad consequences. And it will be very interesting to see if there is a reversal and what effect that might have. But to your main point, you're completely right. And I say this in the book. Look, you can't expect to transplant a whole institutional model that has to do with culture. It has to do with politics. It has to do with history. It has to do with a shared sense of norms of how things should be done, right? It's hard. It's not something you just transplant. But what I encourage people to do is to look at the Nordics and see, well, what is the economic function of wage bargaining there? And as the car wash example shows, the economic function is that by driving up the lowest wages, you force companies to either invest in capital or go out of business. If wages are very high, then it's not profitable to hire people to wash cars by hand. And instead, it's more profitable to invest in a machine that uses the big roller brushes to clean them. So you mentioned some examples. You know, a high minimum wage means that you will simply not, you know, if it's enforced, you simply will not hire people for very unproductive jobs. A high-pressure economy that you see in the US now, where wages at the bottom are being driven up very fast, should have the same effect. And I think we're seeing that now in the US. You know, all these companies complaining that they that they can't find labor or people are leaving them or whatever. Well, they're not paying enough, right? Why are they not paying enough? Maybe they're not productive enough. But Employment is not falling in the US. These people are getting jobs. So they're getting jobs at other companies that can afford to pay the higher wage to lure them away, which is presumably because they're more productive. So there's a reallocation here from less productive to more productive businesses, which can sound harsh, but that we should embrace. This is part of how we make change work for people. I can give you one other example of how you can achieve this. If you give people an ability to say no to jobs, because they're not going to have nothing to feed their children that night if they don't turn up to an abusive boss or a, or a lousy shift pattern. And they say, no, you know, I'm going to leave this job and look for something better. So if you have a welfare system that allows people to spend a month looking for something else or spend a couple of months training themselves up to get a better job with some sort of benefit to survive, in the book, I advocate very strongly a universal basic income on these grounds. Martin, tell, tell listeners real quick, if you don't mind my interrupting, what a universal basic income 
is and why specifically you argue for it from the standpoint of empowering workers rather than some of the other arguments that are sometimes advanced for this idea. Absolutely. No, you're quite right to, to interrupt. A universal basic income is a welfare benefit that is a cash amount given to everyone, no strings attached, no conditions. Unconditional, universal, basic. Not a very big amount. From, basically, from, from the government's coffers, from, to be clear. From the government. From raise the government. taxes, you know, and from the taxpayer, you essentially send to everybody the same amount. And I want to be clear, this is not means tested. When you say it's sent to everybody, no strings attached, people who don't have any money or, or have very low incomes, they get it. But so do very rich people and everybody in between, correct? Everybody gets it. And there's one or two real life examples of this. One in the U.S., in fact, one is in Alaska where oil revenues have been put into a fund and that fund pays out a check to every resident of Alaska in the same amount every year, no questions asked, no, no strings attached, no means testing and no work requirement. Um, and there are examples on some uh, Native American reservations that have casino earnings and that also pay out a universal basic income based on those earnings. So the examples exist, but they are, you know, they're very special. No country has done this on a general basis. But that's what the system would be. My main argument for it has to do with power. The safety, the security of knowing that you can say no to abuse or exploitation or simply very poor, lousy labor conditions, which are bad for you, but also bad for productivity. That safety, that security uh, will enable workers to better their situation because it takes time and effort and energy to find a better job. And it will force employers to say, well, I can't get away with poverty wages anymore. Nobody's going to come to me because they can go and take this benefit or they can survive on this benefit. So they're just going to say no. It will force them to up their game. They will have to say, well, maybe I'll have to increase wages and give predictable shift patterns. How would I do that? And some of them will find ways to do that. They will realize Actually, I could just plan this two weeks in advance and give them the list of shifts. Actually, I can cut some waste here and there. Actually, I can maybe market better. All kinds of things that the business can do. The difference is that the the risk is shifted onto the business owner. And it will expose who is a good business owner, who is a competent manager, who is an innovative entrepreneur, and who is just relying on his workers or her workers not having any alternative. Yeah, one thing that's obviously appealing about a universal basic income is that you're not making people jump through hoops to access the benefit. In the U.S. in particular, we make poor people go through the most ludicrous processes to access even benefits that they are entirely qualified for. And so the consequence of that is that a lot of people just end up not getting them because those barriers act as a disincentive to get them. And also it becomes something like a full-time job to access benefits that you are, in fact, entitled to. Well, with a UBI, you don't have to worry about it. It just arrives. And the government isn't always great at setting up bureaucratic processes to distribute benefits, but it is good at sending people money. One potential objection that you do address in the book is the idea that a universal basic income would act as a disincentive to work. That if you know that you're going to get a certain amount of money, that you'll either work fewer hours or you might just live off of that check that you can rely on, that you can depend on. You write that actually it would have the exact opposite effect. And I'd love to hear uh, I'd love to hear your reasoning for it. That's right. I think it's entirely the other way round. In one sentence, the reason is if you get a universal basic income and you work, then you get more than if you have a universal basic income and you choose not to work. You'll always be better off working than not working with a universal basic income system. Think about what we have in many countries today. In the US, it's the earned income tax credit. There are equivalent benefits in many other countries. What they do is to say, well, when you work a bit, we're going to add to your salary. And then when you work a bit more and you get a higher salary, you're going to start withdrawing that. The effect of that is that when you go up to the sort of lower middle of the income scale, you effectively face a much, much higher tax rate than the very richest people because you face the normal tax rate and social security taxes and you face the withdrawal of your tax credit. Put them together and you get effective tax rate of 70, 80, 90%. That's a discouragement 
to work or at least to working more. Whereas with yeah. UBI, you don't have that. Yeah, Martin, I actually want to sketch a very, very, very simple completely hypothetical example here to illustrate the point. So this is not a realistic example. This is a simplified example. But if you make, let's say, you know, a very low income, $12,000 a year, and based on that low income, you therefore qualify for a government benefit of $3,000 a year. So you end up with $15,000. Well, then let's say that that benefit phases out at a salary of $15,000. There's no incentive for you to work harder or to take a different job that will pay you $15,000 because you lose that benefit, which means that the marginal tax rate on those extra $3,000 you would earn is 100%, right? So it is a disincentive in that sense to work. Whereas what you're saying is that if you have a universal basic income, which is a flat amount of money that you're getting no matter what, of course you would take the higher paying job at $15,000, or you would possibly work more hours and make $15,000 because you're not losing anything. That is essentially the argument you're making here, correct? That, that's exactly right. And let me add one more thing because your perceptive listeners will, will be thinking, well, isn't there a contradiction here? Because now he says that people wouldn't stop working, but just before he said, but the great thing is that they could stop working. So let me explain that because I don't think in effect the result would be of a UBI system would be that people stopped working. And the few places that have tried something like it, that's what you see, people keep working. But the ability to say no to a bad job, that I think is important. And my hypothesis, my thesis is that because employers would respond to that and have to make jobs better, in fact, you would increase the incentive to work. So you, you would kind of get rid of all this waste and unproductive effects of very bad jobs because people wouldn't accept very bad jobs anymore. So yes, if businesses never responded, never reacted to this sort of policy and just kept offering awful jobs, then yeah, I assume some people would say, look, I'd rather just stay at home and get by on the modest universal basic income because there are no good jobs out there. It's not worth breaking my back and not seeing my sons and daughters uh, for a pittance. Yeah. But I believe in capitalism. I believe that businesses respond and react to these incentives. And if labor was beginning to be withdrawn, they would say, hey, I need to up my game here. This is what we're seeing right now with the pressure on low, uh, low salaries. People are starting to say, well, we need to find some way to pay people more to retain them. You know, this is a pro-capitalist argument. Capitalist economies are amazingly adaptive. So let's make sure we set up the incentives for them to adapt in the direction we'd like to see. Yeah. I should note, by the way, that you offer a lot of other policy prescriptions in the book. And I'm going to leave that as a little bit of a suspense for our listeners and also as an incentive for them to go ahead and, and buy a copy because it is well worth their time. But the reason I want to move on now is that I actually want to bring the conversation up to speed, up to current events now. And in particular, the policy responses that we've seen in the U.S. and parts of Europe in the aftermath of the COVID crisis, because you make the case, and here's where I want to begin, that actually it is easier, simpler maybe, for governments to enact big policy agendas rather than making incremental change little by little. And I would even note that the very subtitle of your book is a radical plan to win back the left behind and achieve prosperity for all. And we have seen, I think, some radical policy solutions in the last couple of years, or at least radical relative to what we might have expected before the pandemic arrived. So Start with your political theory there, which is that it is better to try big things than to try a bunch of small things. Yes. Uh, you know, I started thinking about this book after the political upheavals of 2016, the Trump election and the Brexit referendum in the UK, like so many others. Uh, and a lot of these things seemed radical at the time. And the book, the original edition of the book came out right when the pandemic hit. Since then, things have changed so much that I, you know, I have my breath taken away a bit. It's, it's very exciting for me because I think a lot of the things that I was advocating are being tried out, uh, certainly in the US. But, you know, the flip side of that is it doesn't feel so radical anymore. I mean, this is, this is happening. But it's a very interesting test and an experiment, if you like, for some of the suggestions I, I have in the book. Look, I think part of what went wrong over the last 30, 40 years, I said it's a difficult problem. 
this uh, economic, technologically driven change we've had is very hard to deal with. But one part of the problem was that we didn't really have the economic or political imagination to address it. I think in the book, I, I call it learned helplessness. I think a lot of politicians thought, well, this is just what the world is like. This is, a, this is as good as it gets. We can't go against globalization. Globalization means that there isn't really anything we or not much we can do about these problems. So, you know, there you go. Let's celebrate it, uh, at least for those who benefit. That, of course, was not going to work politically, as we saw in 2016. But partly because I work with ideas, I, I like to think that if we can change the way we think about this, we may also unlearn some of that helplessness. And, and that's one reason why thinking big is important. If you can visualize a whole program of change rather than just tweaking the margins of something, you can both tell a better story to citizens and to voters, and you can also see a little bit yourself what the point is of the sort of changes you're trying to make. So I think politically having a big idea or a whole program centered around some big proposals is important. And of course, the populists have been doing this, right? They've been saying, let's throw the whole system overboard. They haven't been particularly, you know, technically detailed about it. They're not sophisticated about it. But it's a big idea, all right. It distinguishes them and it promises something. It promises something that they could never keep. But us, you know, I'd like to think of us as, as trying to be radical centrists. We need to have a big promise. And if I'm right, then it's possible to make big promises that can even be kept. But they have to be, you know, not much is going to change if you don't change a lot at the same time. Yeah, let's talk about some of the specific policies that we've seen implemented over the last couple of years. And I should note here that we are in the kind of aftermath of the book's publication. This has to do with your revisiting some of the themes in the book in columns of yours at the Financial Times. Now that we have learned a lot about the kinds of big radical policies that we've seen that you had not expected when the book came out, uh, partly because they were a response to an event that was also big and dramatic and certainly tragic in so many ways, but which have also led to a period of economic experimentation. So I'm going to just give a very rough sketch of what we've seen in the last couple of years, and then we'll talk about the results uh, and how to interpret those results. So certainly in the first year of the pandemic, you saw a couple of things. You saw monetary policymakers, the central banks of the world, injecting a lot of stimulus into the economy and also not just by lowering interest rates, but providing a lot of stability to the financial system so that you would not have a repeat or even something even vaguely resembling the kinds of turmoil in financial markets that we saw in the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. They acted very quickly to avert that. Certainly the U.S. case is the one I'm most familiar with, but I think that also applies to other parts of the world, Europe, Japan, and so forth. You also saw fiscal policymakers, so the governments, using their ability to use the government's balance sheet to spend money into the economy to replace, first of all, the incomes of the people who lost their jobs in the early parts of the pandemic when there was in the U.S. a very deep but very short recession. And then further on, even a year later, continuing to stimulate the economy through, you know, big policy agendas under both Presidents Trump and Joe Biden, I should say. There were big packages passed under both of them. And so what you have now is a situation where in terms of economic output, what the economy produces, well, that has recovered, I think, quite a bit better than many people expected. You have a labor market that is not quite at the strength it was right before the pandemic, but which also, I think, has recovered more quickly than people expected. And where you have many people, especially on the lower end, people who don't make very high wages, now having the ability to get new jobs and you see them switching jobs quite a bit because their wages are also going up, again, in response to these policies. But, and this is where things become tricky, those policies were so stimulative, okay, and they've been accompanied by a sequence of fairly, you know, fairly, fairly tragic and also badly timed, if you will, economic events, you know, shock to the global supply chain, the Ukraine-Russia war, certainly huge lockdowns in China. 
that have all combined to lead to very high inflation in the U.S. And now in Europe, not quite as high as in the U.S., but certainly higher than it used to be. And so there is this trade-off between an economy that has recovered more quickly than was expected versus the very high inflation that people really don't like. You know, maybe high inflation is better than the alternative, but people really don't like it. And so this is sort of the world that we exist in now. So I'd love for you to just start telling us how should we characterize the policy outcomes of the last couple of years? I think most of us are guilty of not at all appreciating just how good things are and how well they've gone and how much better they've gone than we had any reason to expect. And that is largely down to policy responses. So the U.S. is a very good case uh, because the uh, the contrasts are, are so so obvious in the U.S. compared to different crises and the size of the policy response. But employment it hasn't fully recovered. You're right, but it's recovered much faster than in previous recessions. Much faster. Aggregate demand, the total spending in the economy, is roughly back to where it was predicted to be after just two years. That's a huge victory. In normal recessions, you never recover to where you expect it to be. You may recover to where you were, and then you continue growing. But the norm after a recession is that you stay forever below the path, the trajectory that the economy was, was on earlier. So these are victories, right? The fact that people find it easy to find jobs, that's a good thing. This goes back to my point about learned helplessness. I think a lot of us, including sort of people on the progressive left, they kind of got so used to what they thought the norm in the labor market was that they sort of think there's something abnormal about businesses having to compete for workers rather than workers having to compete for jobs. But this is, if we had to choose, surely we would choose a labor market like this, right? Where you can leave a job and you find another one. Or you say, look, if I don't, if you don't improve things here for me, then I will leave and find another one. So we, we touched on this earlier on. Suddenly, workers have a bargaining power they have seen eroded for 40 years. And for so long, in fact, that I think, again, people have sort of forgotten what a good labor market should feel like. It should feel like this, okay? So those are three, I think, I counted three, three good things. Now, inflation, of course, is high. I think, first of all, that most of this inflation isn't actually because of the demand stimulus. I think we would have had it anyway. I think a lot of it comes from the war, of course, most recently. So it's Vladimir Putin's fault. A lot of it came from the rise in energy prices in the second half of 2021. Some of that was also actually Vladimir Putin's fault because he stopped sending enough gas to Europe to fill up the gas reservoirs. Markets saw that and started saying, oh, there's a risk here and started driving prices up. And then before that, of course, you've had COVID-related disruptions, you've had pileups in supply chains, you've had lockdowns at the wrong time in the wrong places, never a right time in a right place. But in terms of how these very tightly run supply chains work. And in the US, you've had this very bizarre shift from buying services to buying goods that you don't see in other countries, but it's enormous. So total spending in the economy is about where you would have predicted it to be. Spending on goods is still, last time I looked, some 20% above where you would have expected it to be, and services correspondingly lower. Now, it would be, it would be amazing if that didn't cause huge uh, inflation in the goods space, in energy, in transport, and so on, and added to those supply shocks I mentioned, shocks to the capacity of the global economy to deliver, Of course, you have a shift up in prices, and that spreads through the whole economy. I don't think we see a situation, which is the one we should worry about if it happens, where workers are demanding excessive salary increases, and that is forcing companies to put up prices. I think that partly because we see that companies in the US have record high profit margins. They're not being squeezed by wages. Maybe some, maybe some companies are, but then we get back to which companies are well-run, which are badly run. Most companies, on average, they have very high profit margins. So I don't think we have this unsustainable push for higher wages that should make us worry that inflation will keep going. I said at the start of the pandemic, I said, look, if we get some inflation, that would be a sign that we're doing things right, because it means that we're not letting demand collapse even more than supply. 
So I was always prepared for some inflation. I accept it's more than I thought it would be. After each of these big shocks to the global uh, economy's capacity, the lockdowns, the energy shock, the war, and so on, I've said, look, this is a bad shock, but it's temporary. You know, in the old, in that, that debate about is inflation transitory? I say it's transitory. It doesn't become less transitory because you get three temporary shocks one after another. But of course, you know, it's hard to tell the difference and, and I might be wrong. But I think we've gone too far in saying that there's something very bad about this situation. Most people have a much better economic situation than it would have been reasonable to expect when the pandemic hit. And that's especially true for the people who've been most at the margins of the labor market. I want to bring up an additional point about inflation that, to my mind, has gone somewhat, I think, underappreciated. So leaving aside the typical debates about the, the costs and, and, as you mentioned, some of the benefits of a period in which policy was so strong that it generates some inflation, there's something else here that I want to note and that I'd love to get your thoughts on. Economists have long said that when you have inflation, you're also learning something about the economy. It is sending a signal about where resources should be sent to alleviate the higher inflation. So that if, for example, you have very high gas prices, then you can see that it's because there's a shortfall, let's say, in the supply of oil. And so you know that that is something to address. And the private sector and the government, right, can start addressing it, you know, through various policy ideas and through various initiatives. In the last roughly, I don't know, six months to a year or so, you've seen a lot of commentary along the lines of the need for even very redistributive policy agendas or progressive policy agendas, if you want to refer to them that way, to include a heavy emphasis on the supply side, on the capacity of the economy to produce things, to become more productive over time. So, for example, the writer Ezra Klein has called this supply-side progressivism. Um, a writer named Derek Thompson has referred to this as the economics of abundance. It's not just commentators, though. It's also policymakers that have taken notice. The White House recently came out with a policy agenda for how to build more housing in the country because that's an area where prices have gone up a lot, where housing has become very difficult to afford for so many people. And if you have a period, so long as it's a temporary period, of course, of very high inflation, it leads to a kind of reassessment or re-emphasis on the importance of, as we've been discussing, productivity growth, on the productive capacity of the economy. And it seems to me like that's a very healthy thing, that for so long, inflation was unbelievably low and there just wasn't as much talk about the importance of the combination of, for example, government investment and healthy markets-based competition to create a very strong, growing economic capacity for the whole economy. And this reassessment, this redirection of attention towards economic capacity, towards ideas that would help lift not just productivity growth, but potential productivity growth into the future seems quite healthy to me. It seems vital. And so I'm not dismissing the costs of inflation on a lot of people. I'm just saying it has this virtue that, again, to my mind, has gone somewhat underexplored. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that. It's a really important intellectual shift that you're identifying. It brings me back to a speech that Janet Yellen gave a month or two ago where she talked about a modern supply-side economics, exactly the sort of thing you've been, uh, you've been describing. And she gave it this label, modern supply-side economics, as a take, if you like, or a riff on the <laughs> supply-side economics of the Reagan years in the 1980s, which was about deregulation. Here it's about government investment in the productive capacity of the economy. Inflation is a, is a signal. It's an indicator. The phenomenon we really care about is the state of aggregate demand, demand for goods and services in the economy. To some extent, that may be driving inflation up. But, but what matters is whether businesses and employers see that there is strong demand and there will continue to be strong demand. Let me go back to before the pandemic. I think the decade we had after the global financial crisis from 2009 to 2019 was a bit of a lost decade. You've pointed out that we had very low productivity growth. It took a long time to recover employment. Growth was slow. It was I horrible, honestly. It was it grinding was, it was and quite horrible and frustrating to watch policymakers 
continually underestimate how bad the growth actually was, how sluggish it was, and to not stimulate the economy more than they did. I'll be honest, it drove me crazy. And investment was very low, both yes. public but especially private investment was very low. I was writing lots of columns at the time saying, this is just because demand isn't strong enough. So you will remember a lot of the debate then was about, have, uh, has monetary policy gone too far? Are interest rates too low? Uh, is debt too high? Have deficits been too big? I was writing very consistently, they haven't gone far enough. Um, they need to stimulate more. Uh, that's why we're not getting satisfactory results. So, you know, I come in, of course, to the pandemic recovery with a bit of a bias. I'm worried that we make the same mistakes again of having too little demand. Now, the, the view that you've been describing and that, uh, that I promote is that if you have high pressure demand in the economy, even to the point of some inflation, and importantly, businesses and workers think that that pressure will remain, then they will make choices based on that. Businesses will invest. They'll say, well, you know, I can afford to buy this huge machine now because I know demand for my products will increase when I can produce more. Workers may train themselves to use a machine, for example, because they know that there will be plentiful work. So I think there's a very real possibility that this shift towards a uh, high demand economy could have good productivity effects. But it would really help if the government put in place enabling policies that encourage these investments to make the supply side, to increase the capacity of the supply side. That includes plain public investment in infrastructure. It includes things like signals of what the tax system will look like. For example, will there be a higher price on carbon in the future so that companies know now whether it's worth investing in a battery factory or a solar panel factory or a wind farm or EV factory. But it also includes things like childcare provision to allow more women to go into the workforce and take up and actually relieve some of this pressure on the jobs market. So my big worry is this. We fail to fix those things on the supply side. We get scared about too much demand because we have a year of high inflation, although it really only just makes up for below target inflation in the decade we've come out of. Um, and we say, oh, you know, we're doing, this is going to go wrong. We need to withdraw stimulus. And then, of course, businesses see that and say, well, there's no point in investing if uh, this demand is just temporary. Yeah. And then we go back to the same kind of funk that we were in in the previous decade, and I would say in the 80s and in parts of the 2000s. Yeah, I want to I want to read something here that you wrote in a recent piece and then get your further thoughts on it. You are summarizing some new research from the Bank for International Settlements, and it's about the effects of recessions. And here's what you write. First, on average, recessions increase inequality. Second, increases in inequality are sticky, and it does not quickly come down by itself. And third, higher inequality blunts the normal macroeconomic policy tools used to fight inflations, unquote. The reason I bring this up is that we are living now in a world where we are constantly trying to sort of analyze what the counterfactual would have been. This is the sort of age-old you know, problem with anything in the social sciences, really, not just economics, is that we can't live in a world that we don't live in, right, to state the obvious. But I would argue that we kind of have lived in a counterfactual world, almost. The world that existed in the decade or so after the great financial crisis was a world where we had very low inflation and also very slow growth and also a very weak labor market that took forever. I mean, it was interminable how long it took to recover. We're now living in a somewhat different experience. I'm not saying that that experience doesn't bring costs. I'm not saying inflation is great. But it also strikes me that there is a case for patience based on the lessons of the decade after the great financial crisis. I don't see that as a no longer relevant decade. I think those lessons are still very important. And when I hear people say that we have forgotten the lessons of the 1970s when we had very high inflation and we are recommitting those sins now, I think, God, are we already forgetting the lessons we literally just learned a few years ago of what happened in the aftermath of the great financial crisis? You know, Cardiff, what's, what's so frustrating, uh, I agree with you, but we remembered them so well in 2020, right? When the pandemic hit in the US, in Europe, where they put together this huge common fund for common borrowing, completely different from the austerity policies of the 2010s. We had learned all those lessons. 
Uh, and now we may be forgetting them very fast. But that is why I insist on seeing how well this uh, pandemic response has gone. Because precisely how badly things were before. And it's because for a moment, at least, we had learned the right lessons and applied that knowledge. And I think it's intellectually wrong and politically dangerous to now say, oh, it didn't work. We need to go back to some, some previous norm. Take that point about inequality and recessions. A, a simple way of putting this is that in a downturn, those on the lowest wages, those on the margins, they get fired first and they get hired last in their recovery. So if you can shorten a recession by having more stimulus, you're going to leave those people out of the labor market for shorter. That's good for everyone. It's good for productivity in the economy. It's certainly good for them. It allows them to keep building skills and so on. We did that this time around. The US did that especially. The Euro Europe did pretty well too, most European countries. If you look at wage increases, wage increases are fastest for the lowest paid. You know, this is unheard of, right? You look at the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, wage growth tracker, and you'll see that it's the people with the lowest wages, the lowest quartile, have wage increases that are, you know, three percentage points higher than the people in the top quartile. This is enormous and it's unprecedented. And it's an extremely good thing. So we need to celebrate that. And, uh, you know, we need to be a little bit worried about this, what I think to be a, a short-term inflationary problem, when so much else is going well. And we need to keep that in mind. All right. Well, one way that we can keep all these lessons in mind is to buy Martin's book, The Economics of Belonging, which is now out in paperback. Martin, is it out everywhere in paperback? Is it in the U.S.? It's out in the uh, U.S. It... It'll, okay. it'll come out in Europe in July. All right. Go check it out. And uh, Martin, thank you so much for being on The New Bazaar. This was a, a real pleasure to reconnect and rehash all of these super important topics. Great to be with you, Cardiff. Thanks very much. And that's all the time we have for today's show. You can find links to Martin Sambu's book, The Economics of Belonging, in the show notes for this episode. Again, it is now out in paperback. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Once again, please send your questions for our upcoming listener Q&A episode to hello at bazaaraudio.com. That's hello at B-A-Z-A-A-R-A-U-D-I-O.com. Or you can send it to me directly on Twitter, where I am at Cardiff Garcia. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.